Our New Testament reading today comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 9 through 15. Let us listen for the word of the Lord speaking to us now. During the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Theatria and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This past week, I read an article in The Guardian titled, What happened when I met my Islamophobic troll? The author, Hussein Kasvani, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, wrote an article about what happened when he started to respond to the man who was filling his inbox every day with videos and memes and hateful messages against Islam. I clicked on the article thinking... I knew what to expect. I expected a story of how one man sojourned into the waters of the web, bravely reaching out to a guy who was sending him such hateful messages. I expected a story where the author was kinder than he needed to be and the kindness paid off. And by the end, the guy sending the hateful message had seen the error of his ways and they would all get together for tea and cake and a traveling seminar on the importance of reaching out to your enemies. In short, I expected a conversion story. But this is not what I got. Instead, I got something different and more subtle and I admit much more disappointing. Yes, the author, Hussein Kasvani, is kinder than he needs to be in this article, and he reaches out to the man, Phil, who is messaging him every day with such hateful pieces of text. And Kasvani does eventually meet with Phil in his home. Phil does have some measure of sympathy, or at least pathos. He lives on his own. He's divorced. He's laid off. He spends untold hours on the Internet, Kasvani and we learned that Phil started his sojourn into what is now very much right-wing ideology by first reading a couple blogs, and then he started watching a few YouTube videos, and then he just kept clicking around the internet. And eventually, Phil started tweeting and retweeting these extremist videos with doctored and edited footage about Muslims and Islam. This got Phil the attention of right-wing bloggers and many bot accounts, that are designed to just retweet these sorts of messages, 
And Phil was very excited about this attention because it meant his own Twitter following increased. Phil does tell Hussein Kasfani that he doesn't hate Muslims, but he says this while crafting and retweeting a racist tweet about the London mayor, who is Muslim. Phil hits post while Kasfani is sitting next to him. The article ends with Phil getting kicked off Twitter for violating their rules about hate language. He doesn't return Kasfani's phone calls, and Kasfani ends the article turning again to his own inbox, finding the next stranger who is sending him messages of hate. We do not get a conversion story here. Instead, we get something more incisive and insidious. We get a story of how extremism grows as one person can sit at home alone. We get a story of how a life can head down a path towards more hate and fear just by clicking suggested links on the internet. You can head down this path through a hundred subtle nudges and suggestions. What the author is exploring in this piece is not just about Phil, but it's about how certain companies like YouTube are in some ways very responsible for the journey to extremism. It's a fascinating exploration, and I invite you to look up the piece. And Kasvani is joining others who are making the case that YouTube and internet platforms like Facebook, Google, Twitter are playing a significant role in radicalizing and polarizing our society. These companies all want to keep our eyeballs on their pages for as long as possible. And so they've figured out the way to do this is to keep heightening our emotions and sensations as we click around their pages. So if you watch a video, then the algorithms of the platform will suggest another one and then another one and make it very easy to keep clicking. And usually these videos are increasing in intensity and emotions. Kasvani quotes a Wall Street Journal investigation that found YouTube often fed far-right and far-left videos to users who watched relatively mainstream news sources, and that such extremist tendencies were evident with a wide variety of material. If you search for information on the flu vaccine, you were recommended anti-vaccination conspiracy videos. Or if you start watching a few Trump rallies, within a few clicks, you would be offered videos about white supremacy. One scholar of science technology draws the analogy between our habits on the internet and our changing diets. She writes, human beings have many natural tendencies that need to be vigilantly monitored in the context of modern life. For example, our craving for fat and salt and sugar, which served us well when food was scarce, can lead us astray in an environment in which fat and salt and sugar are all too plentiful and heavily marketed to us. So too, our natural curiosity about the unknown can lead us astray on a website that leads us too often in the direction of lies, hoaxes, and misinformation. In effect, YouTube has created a restaurant that serves us increasingly sugary, fatty foods, loading up our plates as soon as we are finished with the last meal. Over time, our tastes adjust, and we seek even more sugary, fatty foods, which the restaurant dutifully provides. And when confronted about this by the health department and concerned citizens, 
the restaurant managers reply that they are merely serving us what we want. In this Guardian article, Phil doesn't trust the mainstream media. But the ironic or pathetic thing is that in his distrust, he has let his choices get hijacked by calculated algorithms of social media companies. In the name of having his own free thoughts, he spends days doing what Twitter and YouTube tell him to do, trapped by his own desire to get retweeted and gain more followers. This story stuck with me because I wanted something different. I wanted a conversion story. We all want conversion stories if we think about it, in our own life and in the life of others. At some point, we all want to have change be dramatic and decisive rather than tedious and time-consuming. We want to be converted, to throw off the shackles of our misguided mistakes. We want to point to that moment in time when we saw the error of our ways, where we made amends and changed our life. We want to be freed from what worried and weighed us down in the past, and so often we convince ourselves that change will come with that new job or that new day planner or that new weight loss or eating plan. But we rarely get a good conversion story. Instead, we get life that is shaped by a dozen clicks and double clicks, by a hundred subtle suggestions or gestures, by a thousand decisions that we make every day. These double clicks and gestures and decisions shape and reshape our days until they shape and reshape our lives, until they shape and reshape our community, our society, our world. I've just told you a story of how this suggesting and shaping can go horribly wrong. But there are other stories, and I'm sure you know them, where suggestions and gestures and decisions can go beautifully right. There are stories of people being kind, and then being kind again, and then being kind again until it tips the balance of someone's life towards love and away from shame. There are stories of groups offering welcome, and then offering welcome again and then again until it changes a whole community for the better. I'm sure you can think of such a story in your own life, of a person who planted seeds of goodness in you, of a community that watered and nurtured such seeds until one day you woke up and realized how deeply those good roots go in your life. Our Acts passage today is such a story. We might expect a grand conversion narrative, the quick take on this scripture makes it seem like Paul converts Lydia, that he preaches, and Lydia, this wealthy woman, suddenly and dramatically decides to be baptized. But this is not that conversion story. The Bible is very clear in a few verses that while Paul preaches a pretty good sermon, it is not he who opens Lydia's heart. God does that. And the Bible also makes clear that Lydia is already a worshiper of God 
She has already in this text come to a place of prayer where the disciples are gathering. She has already chosen to take time out of her busy day to sit and pray, worship, and listen to these traveling teachers. Lydia runs a business. At least it says she is a dealer in purple cloth, and purple dye was very expensive to harvest and use in those days, so she must be a relatively successful business owner. She probably has a lot of good reasons not to be pausing at a place in prayer. But somehow, some way, we hear that Lydia has already made choices to create space to sit down and to worship. And God then opens her heart. So that when Paul speaks, Lydia has already chosen to be ready to listen. After her baptism, Lydia invites Paul and his fellow travelers to her home. For here's the other thing in the text. This baptism isn't the beginning of Lydia's journey of faith, and it also isn't the end. This isn't about Paul getting up and continuing on his way, having triumphantly won another soul to Christ. This is about an ongoing story of life and faith. And Lydia inviting Paul and his fellow travelers to her home is not just a simple act of hosting. In the Mediterranean world at the time, a household was not just a nuclear family. It was a conglomeration of family and servants and workers and stewards and close business associates and others. A household at the time would have been a political as well as a familial entity. Lydia, in inviting Paul to her house, is bringing him under her economic and political care. Later in Acts, after Paul and Silas are released from jail, they will return to Lydia's house. So this isn't just a story of Paul baptizing Lydia, winning another soul to Christ. This is a story of Lydia then taking care of Paul and his fellow disciples, of Lydia using her substantial resources to help Paul build a church in Philippi, giving him a safe space when he runs into trouble with the authorities. This is a story of Lydia following nudges towards more prayer and hospitality until she ends up becoming a founder and host of a house church in this Roman colony. And Paul, too, we hear, has been following nudges to get to this place at this time. Our Acts passage opens with Paul receiving a vision. He chooses to follow this vision, even though it means going on a long journey, and the writer makes clear this is definitely going to require burning some shoe leather. But Paul listens to this nudge from the Holy Spirit, and he sets out on a journey to expand the community of faith, to welcome more Gentiles and Jews to join these Jesus followers. Acts is not telling us a story of some famous teacher coming to town, baptizing, and then taking off for the next religious rally. Acts is not telling us this grand conversion tale. Acts is telling us a story about community. Acts is telling us a story of a hundred choices, a thousand decisions that led these early disciples to work for the worship of God and build a community of what we now know as the church. The story of the early church is a story of community, of people coming together and realizing that they need to listen and learn and push their understanding of God into new regions of life and faith. 
Acts is a story of people deciding to follow the nudges of the Holy Spirit and shape their lives for more prayer, more hospitality, more abundant welcome. The story I opened with is a disappointing tale of how hate and exclusion can subtly root itself into our spirits. It is a disheartening tale of how often we make influential choices without even realizing it until we find ourselves caught in the cesspools of despair and rage. Our life is not built on a stack of dramatic and sudden conversions. It is built on a million choices that we make over time, choices we have made to speak or to be silent, choices we have made to step up or step down or step aside, Our lives are made up of decisions about which nudges we respond to and how we choose to respond. In a world of unseen algorithms and attitudes pushing us to think and feel a certain way, we must live with more intention, choosing more deliberately who we will worship and what we will allow to guide and shape our days. We must live with more intention, deciding to push more actively against those sowing seeds of hate and distrust and nurturing more energetically and passionately whatever sprouts of hope and hospitality we see trying to emerge. We can do this by starting somewhere, somewhere small, We can do this by starting to fill our minds and hearts with words and images like Psalm 67, where we hear about all the peoples of the earth, all nations and races coming together, all diversity and variety coming together in joy and praise and celebration rather than violence and fear. We can do this by gathering in places like here, where we amplify words such as love and grace and forgiveness, and we declare that we believe these things are real. Even when we struggle to believe it, we do declare that we believe somehow, some way, these things are real. We come together and we practice actions like passing of the peace or saying sorry and receiving the forgiveness that is offered. We follow the nudges of the Spirit by filling ourselves with prayers for the people of the world rather than filling ourselves with fear about those other people. Although we all know it can be otherwise, worship should be the place where we follow nudges and suggestions that guide us to deeper wells of faith, to broader visions of hope, and to more courageous actions of love. I wonder what will speak to you in worship today. I wonder what words or images from our hymns or our liturgy or our anthems will stand out to you and speak to you. I wonder what or who will nudge you in our pews and in our prayers. I wonder what the Spirit is suggesting to you today. Sometimes it would be nice to live in a conversion story. It would be nice to wake up tomorrow and have everything changed for the better. But Paul does not wake up magically in Macedonia, reaching out to Gentiles there, and Lydia does not wake up suddenly the host of a house church offering hospitality 
to preachers and prisoners. Both disciples must first listen to God's whispers and follow God's nudges. Both have to go on a journey of life and faith, a journey that takes them into unexpected places. We will not wake up tomorrow in a world of joy and praise or in a perfect church filled with perfect people. But we can start today by following the nudges of the Holy Spirit. We can start pushing against the suggestions that lure us onto paths of fear and hate. We can start resisting the seductive sirens of blame and shame. Today, we can choose instead to follow in the footsteps of Lydia and Paul. We can choose instead to deepen our prayer and worship, to pay attention to how Christ reaches out to us and to others. Today, we can choose instead to build a vision of more abiding grace, a relationship of more expansive welcome. Today, we can choose to follow Lydia and Paul and listen deeply Consider thoughtfully, pay attention intentionally, and work to build a community that will nudge this whole world towards more hospitality and hope. May it be so. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Lord, we hear the stories of those who journeyed thousands of years ago We hear the stories of decisions and choices that still have a ripple effect and affect our lives today as we gather in worship. So use us in such a way, O God. Use us to nurture whatever seeds of hospitality and hope we see in our own lives and in the life of our community and in the life of our world. In your holy name we pray. Amen.